Welcome to the Bunyip and Ayotashli podcast. Welcome back to Bunyip and Ayotashli, a speculative fiction podcast. This is Bob, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. This week, I've got a great story from Herbert George Wells. It appeared in the 1898 edition of 30 Strange Stories. This story is called The Argonauts of the Air by H.G. Wells. One saw Monson's flying machine from the windows of the trains passing either along the southwestern main line or along the line between Wimbledon and Worcester Park. To be more exact, one saw the huge scaffoldings which limited the flight of the apparatus. They rose over the treetops, a massive alley of interlacing iron and timber, and an enormous web of ropes and tackle extending the best part of two miles. From the Leatherhead branch, this alley was foreshortened and in part hidden by a hill with villas, but from the main line, one had it in profile, a complex tangle of girders and curving bars, very impressive to the excursionists from Portsmouth and Southampton and the West. Monson had taken up the work where Maxim had left it, had gone on at first with an utter contempt for the journalistic wit and arrogance that had irritated and hampered his predecessor, and had spent, it was said, rather more than half his immense fortune upon his experiments. The results, to an impatient generation, seemed inconsiderable. When some five years had passed after the growth of the colossal iron groves at Worcester Park, and Monson still failed to put in a fluttering appearance over Trafalgar Square, even the Isle of Wight trippers felt their liberty to smile. And such intelligent people as did not consider Monson a fool, stricken with the mania for invention, denounced him as being, for no particular reason, a self-advertising quack. Yet now and again a morning trainload of season ticket holders would see a white monster rush headlong through the airy tracery of guides and bars and hear the further stays, nettings, and buffers snap, creak, and groan with the impact of the blow. Then there would be an effervescence of black, set, white-rimmed faces along the sides of the train, and the morning papers would be neglected for a vigorous discussion of the possibility of flying, in which nothing new was ever said by any chance, until the train reached Waterloo and its cargo of season ticket holders dispersed themselves over London. Or the fathers and mothers in some multitudinous train of weary excursionists, returning exhausted from a day of rest by the sea, would find the dark fabric standing out against the evening sky, useful in diverting some bilious child from its introspection, and be suddenly startled by the swift transit of a huge black flapping shake that strained upward against the guides. It was a great and forcible thing beyond dispute, and excellent for conversation. Yet, all the same, it was but flying in leading strings, and most of those who witnessed it scarcely counted its flight as flying more of a switchback, it seemed, to the run of the folk. Monson, I say, did not trouble himself very keenly about the opinions of the press at first, but possibly he, even, had formed but a poor idea of the time it would take before the tactics of flying were mastered. 
the swift assured adjustment of a big soaring shape to every gust and chance of movement in the air, nor had he clearly reckoned the money this prolonged struggle against gravitation would cost him, and he was not so pachydermatous as he seemed. Secretly, he had his periodical bundles of cuttings sent him by Ramaki. He had his periodical reminders from his banker, and if he did not mind the initial ridicule and skepticism, he felt the growing neglect as the months went by and the money dribbled away. Time was when Monson had set the enterprising journalist, keen after readable manner, empty from his gates. But when the enterprising journalist ceased from troubling, Monson was anything but satisfied in his heart of hearts. Still, day by day, the work went on, and the multitudinous subtle difficulties of the steering diminished in number. Day by day, too, the money trickled away, until his balance was no longer a matter of hundreds of thousands, but of tens. And at last came an anniversary. Monson, sitting in the little drawing shed, suddenly noticed the date on Woodhouse's calendar. It was five years ago today that we began, he said to Woodhouse suddenly. Is it? said Woodhouse. It's the altercations play the devil with us, said Monson, biting a paper fastener. The drawings for the new vans to hinder screw lay on the table before him as he spoke. He pitched the mutilated brass paper fastener into the waste paper basket and drummed with his fingers. These alterations. Will the mathematicians ever be clever enough to save us all this patching and experimenting? Five years learning by rule of thumb when one might think that it was possible to calculate the whole thing out beforehand. The cost of it. I might have hired three senior wranglers for life but they only have developed some beautifully useless theorems in pneumatics. What a time it has been, Woodhouse. These moldings will take three weeks, said Woodhouse, at special prices. Three weeks, said Monson, and sat drumming. Three weeks certain, said Woodhouse, an excellent engineer, but no good as a comforter. He drew the sheets toward him and began shading a bar. Monson stopped drumming and began to bite his fingernails, staring the while at Woodhouse's head. How long have they been calling this Monson's folly? he said suddenly. Oh, year or so, said Woodhouse carelessly without looking up. Monson sucked the air in between his teeth and went to the window. The stout iron columns carrying the elevated rails upon which the start of the machine was made up close by, and the machine was hidden by the upper edge of the window. Through the grove of iron pillars, red painted and ornate with rows of bolts, one had a glimpse of the pretty scenery towards Escher. A train went gliding noiselessly across the middle distance. It's rattled round by the hammering of the workmen overhead. Monson could imagine the grinning faces at the windows of the carriages. He swore savagely under his breath and dabbed viciously at a blowfly that suddenly became noisy on the window pane. What's up? said Woodhouse, staring in surprise at his employer. I'm about sick of this. Woodhouse scratched his cheek. Oh, he said, after an assimilating pause. He pushed the drawing away from him. Here are these fools. I'm trying to conquer a new element, trying to do a thing that will revolutionize life, and instead of taking an intelligent interest, they grin and make their stupid jokes, and call me and my appliances names. Asses, said Woodhouse, letting his eye fall again on the drawing. The epithet, curiously enough, made Monson wince. I'm about sick of it, Woodhouse, anyhow, he said after a pause. Woodhouse shrugged his shoulders. There's nothing for it but patience, I suppose, said Monson, sticking his hands in his pockets. 
I've started, I've made my bed, and I've got to lie in it. I can't go back. I'll see it through and spend every penny I have and every penny I can borrow. But I tell you, Woodhouse, I'm infernally sick of it all the same. If I'd paid a tenth part of the money towards some political greaser's expenses, I'd have been a baronet before this. Monson paused. Woodhouse stared in front of him with a blank expression he always employed to indicate sympathy and tapped his pencil case on the table. Monson stared at him for a minute. Oh, damn, said Monson suddenly and abruptly rushed out of the room. Woodhouse continues his sympathetic rigor for perhaps half a minute. Then he sighed and resumed the shading of the drawings. Something had evidently upset Monson. Nice chap and generous, but difficult to get on with. It was the way with every amateur who'd had anything to do with engineering. Wanted everything finished at once. But Monson had usually the patience of the expert. Odd that he was so irritable. Nice and round that aluminum rod did look now. Woodhouse threw back his head and put it first to this side and that to appreciate his bit of shading better. Mr. Woodhouse, said Hooper, the foreman of the laborers, putting his head in at the door. Hello, said Woodhouse, without turning round. Nothing happened, sir, said Hooper. Happened, said Woodhouse. The governor just bent up the rail, swearing like a tornado. Oh, said Woodhouse. It ain't like him, sir. No. And I was thinking, perhaps... Don't think, said Woodhouse, still admiring the drawings. Hooper knew Woodhouse, and he shut the door suddenly with a vicious slam. Woodhouse stared stonily before him for some further minutes, and then made an ineffectual effort to pick his teeth with his pencil. Abruptly, he desisted, pitched that old, tried, and stumpy servitor across the room, got up, stretched himself, and followed Hooper. He looked ruffled. It was visible to every workman he met. When a millionaire who has been spending thousands on experiments that employ quite a little army of people suddenly indicates that he is sick of the undertaking, there is almost invariably a certain amount of mental friction in the ranks of the little army he employs. And even before he indicates his intentions, there are speculations and murmurs, a watching of faces, and a study of straws. Hundreds of people knew before the day was out that Monson was ruffled. Woodhouse ruffled. Hooper ruffled. A workman's wife, for instance, who Monson had never seen, decided to keep her money in the savings bank instead of buying a velveteen dress. So far-reaching are even the casual curses of a millionaire. Monson found a certain satisfaction in going on the works and behaving disagreeable to as many people as possible. After a time, even that palled upon him, and he rode off the grounds to everyone's relief there, and through the lanes southeastward to the infinite tribulation of his house steward at Keene. And the immediate cause of it all, the little grain of annoyance that had suddenly precipitated all this discontent with his life work was, these trivial things that direct all our great decisions, half a dozen ill-considered remarks made by a pretty girl, prettily dressed, with a beautiful voice, and something more than prettiness in her soft gray eyes. And of these half-dozen remarks, two words especially, Monson's folly. She had felt she was behaving charmingly to Monson. She reflected the next day how exceptionally effective she had been, and no one would have been more amazed than she had she learned the effect she had left on Monson's mind. I hope, considering everything, that she never knew. How are you getting on with your flying machine? she asked. I wonder if I shall ever meet anyone with the sense not to ask that, thought Monson. 
It will be very dangerous at first, will it not? Thinks I'm afraid. Jorgen is going to play presently. Have you heard him before? My mania being attended to, we turn to rational conversation. Gush about Jorgen, gradual decline of conversation, ending with, You must let me know when your flying machine is finished, Mr. Munson, and then I will consider the advisability of taking a ticket. One would think I was still playing inventions in the nursery. But the bitterest thing she said was not meant for Monson's ears. To Flocks, the novelist, she was always conscientiously brilliant. I have been talking to Mr. Monson, and he can think of nothing positively nothing but that flying machine of his. Do you know all his workmen call that place of his Monson's folly? He is quite impossible. It is really very, very sad. I always regard him myself in the light of sunken treasure, the lost millionaire, you know. She was pretty and well-educated. Indeed, she had written an epigrammic novelette. But the bitterness was that she was typical. She summarized what the world thought of the man who was working sanely, steadily, and surely toward a more tremendous revolution in appliances of civilization, a more far-reaching alteration in the ways of humanity than has ever been effected since history began. They did not even take him seriously. In a little while, he would be proverbial. I must fly now, he said on his way home, smarting with a sense of absolute social failure. I must fly soon. If it doesn't come off soon, by God, I shall run amuck. He said that before he had gone through his passbook and his litter of papers. Inadequate as the cause seems, it was that girl's voice and the expression of her eyes that precipitated his discontent. But certainly the discovery that he had no longer even 100,000 pounds worth of realizable property behind him was the poison that made the wound deadly. It was the next day after this that he exploded upon Woodhouse and his workmen, and thereafter his bearing was consistently grim for three weeks, and anxiety dwelt in Keem and Yule, Malden, Morden, and Worcester Park, places that had thriven mightily on his experiments. Four weeks after that first swearing of his, he stood with Woodhouse by the reconstructed machine as it lay across the elevated railway, by means of which it gained its initial impetus. The new propeller glittered a brighter white than the rest of the machine, and a gilder, obedient to a whim of Monson's, was picking out the aluminum bars with gold, and looking down the long avenue between the ropes, gilded now with the sunset, one saw red signals, and two miles away an anthill of workmen busy altering the last falls of the run into a rising slope. I'll come, said Woodhouse, I'll come right enough, but I can tell you it's infernally foolhardy. If only you would give another year. I tell you I won't. I tell you the thing works. I've given years enough. It's not that, said Woodhouse. We're all right with the machine, but it's the steering. Haven't I been rushing night and morning, backwards and forwards, through this squirrel's cage? If the thing steers true here, it will steer true all across England. It's just funk, I tell you, Woodhouse. We could have gone a year ago. And besides... Well, said Woodhouse, the money, snapped Monson over his shoulder. Hang it, I never thought of the money, said Woodhouse. And then, speaking now in a very different tone to that which he had said the words before, he repeated, I'll come, trust me. Monson turned suddenly and saw all that Woodhouse had not the dexterity to say, shining on his sunlit face. He looked for a moment, then, impulsively, extended his hand. Thanks, he said. 
All right, said Woodhouse, gripping the hand and with a queer softening to his features. Trust me. Then both men turned to the big apparatus that lay with its flat wings extended upon the carrier and stared at it meditatively. Monson, guided perhaps by a photographic study of the flight of birds and by Lilienthal's methods, had gradually drifted from Maxim's shape toward the bird form again. The thing, however, was driven by a huge screw behind in the place of a tail, and so hovering, which needs an almost vertical adjustment of a flat tail, was rendered impossible. The body of the machine was small, almost cylindrical, and pointed. Forward and aft on the pointed ends were two small petroleum engines for the screw, and the navigator sat deep in a canoe-like recess, the foremost one steering and being protected by a low screen, with two plate-glass windows from the blinding rush of air. On either side, a monstrous flat framework with a curved front border could be adjusted so as to either lie horizontally or to be tilted upward or down. These wings were rigidly together, or by releasing a pin, one could be tilted through a small angle independently of its fellow. The front edge of either wing could also be shifted back so as to diminish the wing area about one-sixth. The machine was not only not designed to hover, but it was also incapable of fluttering. Monson's idea was to get into the air with the initial rust of the apparatus, and then to skim, much like a playing card may be skimmed, keeping up the rush by means of the screw at the stern. Rooks and gulls fly enormous distances in that way with scarcely a perceptible movement of the wings. The bird really drives along on an aerial switchback. It glides slantingly downward for a space until it has gained considerable momentum and then, altering the inclination of its wings, glides up again almost to its original altitude. Even a Londoner who has watched the birds in the Avery in Regent's Park knows that. But the bird is practicing this art from the moment it leaves its nest. It has not only the perfect apparatus, but the perfect instinct to use it. A man off his feet has the poorest skill in balancing. Even the simple trick of the bicycle costs him some hours of labor. And instantaneous adjustments of the wing, the quick response to a passing breeze, the swift recovery of equilibrium, the giddy, eddying movements that require such absolute precision, all that he must learn, learn when infinite labor and infinite danger if ever he is to conquer flying, the flying machine that will start off some fine day. Driven by neat little levers with a nice open deck like a liner, and all loaded up with bombshells and guns, is the easy dreaming of a literary man. In lives and treasure, the cost of the conquest of the empire of the air may even exceed all that has been spent in man's great conquest of the sea. Certainly it will be costlier than the greatest war that has ever devastated the world. No one knew these things better than these two practical men, and they knew they were in the front rank of the coming army. And yet there is hope, even in a forlorn hope. Men are killed outright in the reserves sometimes, while others who have been left for dead in the thickest corner crawl out and survive. If we miss these meadows, said Woodhouse presently in his slow way. My dear chap, said Monson, whose spirits had been rising fitfully during the last two days, we mustn't miss these meadows. There's a quarter of a square mile of forest to hit, fences removed, ditches leveled. We shall come down all right, rest assured. And if we don't... Ah, said Woodhouse, if we don't. Before the day of the start, the newspaper people got wind of the alterations at the northward end of the framework 
and Monson was cheered by a decided change in the comments Ramaki forwarded him. He will be off some day, said the papers. He will be off some day, said the Southwestern season ticket holders, one to another. The seaside excursionists, the Saturday to Monday trippers from Sussex and Hampshire and Dorset and Devon, the eminent literary people from Hazelmere, all remarked eagerly to one another, he will be off some day, as the familiar scaffolding came into sight. And actually, one bright morning, in full view of the ten-past-ten train from Basingstoke, Monson's flying machine started on its journey. They saw the carrier running swiftly along its rail, and the white and gold screw spinning in the air. They heard the rapid rumble of wheels, and a thud as the carrier reached the buffers at the end of its run, then a whir as the flying machine was shot forward into the networks, all that the majority of them had seen and heard before. The thing went with a drooping flight through the framework and rose again, and then every beholder shouted or screamed or yelled or shrieked after his kind, for instead of the customary concussion and stoppage, the flying machine flew out of its five years' cage like a bolt from a crossbow and rose slantingly upward into the air, curved round a little so as to cross the line, and soared in the direction of Wimbledon Common. It seemed to hang momentarily in the air and grow smaller, then it ducked and vanished over the clustering blue treetops to the east of Combe Hill, and no one stopped staring and gasping until long after it had disappeared. That was what the people in the train from Basingstoke saw. If you had drawn a line down the middle of that train, from engine to guard's van, you would not have found a living soul on the opposite side of the flying machine. It was a mad rush from window to window as the thing crossed the line. And the engine driver and stoker never took their eyes off the low hills about Wimbledon, and never noticed that they had run clean through Calm and Malden and Rains Park, until, with returning animation, they found themselves pelting at the most indecent pace into Wimbledon Station. From the moment when Monson had started the carrier with a now, neither he nor Woodhouse said a word. Both men sat with clenched teeth. Monson had crossed the line with a curve that was too sharp, and Woodhouse had opened and shut his white lips, but neither spoke. Woodhouse simply gripped his seat and breathed sharply through his teeth, watching the blue country to the west rushing past and down and away from him. Monson knelt at his post forward, and his hands trembled on the spoked wheel that moved the wings. He could see nothing before him but a mass of white clouds in the sky. The machine went slanting upward, traveling with an enormous speed still, but losing momentum every moment. The land ran away underneath with diminishing speed. Now, said Woodhouse at last, and with a violent effort, Monson wrenched over the wheel and altered the angle of the wings. The machine seemed to hang for a half-minute, motionless in mid-air, and then he saw the hazy blue house-covered hills of Kilburn and Hampstead jump up before his eyes and rise steadily, until the little sunlit dome of the Albert Hall appeared through his windows. For a moment he scarcely understood the meaning of this upward rush of the horizon, but as the nearer and nearer houses came into view, he realized what he had done. He had turned the wings over too far, and they were swooping steeply downward towards the Thames. The thought, the question, the realization were all the business of a second of time. Too much, gasped Woodhouse. Monson brought the wheel halfway back with a jerk, and forthwith the Kilburn and Hampstead Ridge dropped again to the lower angle of his windows. They had been a thousand feet above Coombe at Molden Station, fifty seconds after they whizzed at a frightful pace, 
not 80 feet above East Putney Station on the Metropolitan District Line, to the screaming astonishment of a platform full of people. Monson flung up the vans against the air, and over Fulham they rushed up their atmospheric switchback again, steeply, too steeply. The buses went floundering across the Fulham Road, the people yelled. Then down again, too steeply still, and the distant trees and houses about Primrose Hill leapt up across Monson's window, and then suddenly he saw straight before him the greenery of Kensington Gardens and the towers of the Imperial Institute. They were driving straight down upon South Kensington. The pinnacles of the Natural History Museum rushed up into view. There came one fatal second of swift thought, a moment of hesitation. Should he try and clear the towers or swerve eastward? He made a hesitating attempt to release the right wing, left the catch half-released, and gave a frantic clutch at the wheel. The nose of the machine seemed to leap up before him. The wheel pressed his hand with irresistible force and jerked itself out of his control. Woodhouse, sitting crouched together, gave a hoarse cry and sprang up towards Monston. Too far, he cried. And then he was clinging to the gunwale for dear life, and Monson had been jerked clean overhead and was falling backwards upon him. So swiftly had the thing happened that barely a quarter of the people going to and fro in Hyde Park and Brompton Road and the Exhibition Road saw anything of the aerial catastrophe. A distant winged shape had appeared above the clustering houses to the south, had fallen and risen, growing larger as it did so, had swooped swiftly down towards the Imperial Institute, a broad spread of flying wings had swept round in a quarter circle, dashed eastward, then suddenly sprang vertically into the air. A black object shot out of it and came spinning downward. A man! Two men clutching each other! They came whirling down, separated as they struck the roof of the students' club, and bounded off into the green bushes on its southward side. For perhaps half a minute, the pointed stem of the big machine still pierced vertically upward, the screw spinning desperately. For one brief instant that yet seemed an age to all who watched, it had hung motionless in midair. Then a spout of yellow flame licked up its length from the stern engine, and swift, swifter, swifter, and flaring like a rocket, it rushed down upon the solid mass of masonry which was formerly the Royal College of Science. The big screw of white and gold touched the parapet and crumpled up like a wet linen. Then the blazing spindle-shaped body smashed and splintered, smashing and splintering in its fall upon the northwestward angle of the building. But the crash, the flame of blazing paraffin that shot heavenward from the shattered engines of the machine, the crushed horrors that were found in the garden beyond the students' club, the masses of yellow parapet and red brick that fell headlong into the roadway, the running to and fro of people like ants in a broken anthill, the galloping of fire engines, the gathering of crowds. All of these things do not belong to this story, which was written only to tell how the first of all successful flying machines was launched and flew. Though he failed and failed disastrously, the record of Monson's work remains, a sufficient monument to guide the next of that band of gallant experimentalists who will sooner or later master this great problem of flying the air. And between Worcester Park and Malden there still stands that portentous avenue of ironwork rusting now and dangerous here and there to witness to the first desperate struggle for a man's right of way through the air. That was The Argonauts of the Air by H. G. Wells. 
Please remember to like and subscribe so you won't miss a thrilling episode, or even the not thrilling episodes. Until next week and beyond, thank you for listening to the Bunyip and Aotashli Speculative Fiction Podcast. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.